Hey there, I'm Joanne Tambrakis, and this is Marketing, Mindfulness, and Martinis. Unfiltered conversations, or as I like to say, opinions shaken, not stirred, on what's changing and what's not in business and in life as we enter into the next normal. So pour yourself your beverage of choice, and let's get to it. Today's guest has had a long and storied career in marketing, including but not limited to two stints at 360i and Ogilvy & Mather, which is where I met him before he headed to the other coast and settled in Seattle. He is the founder of Creative Studies and the Disruptive FM podcast and the author of Disruptive Marketing, What Growth Hackers data punks, and other hybrid thinkers can teach us about navigating the new normal. And that was back in 2016 when we thought that was the new normal. He is currently the head of Brand Studio at Microsoft Advertising, where he produces all sorts of great content for them, including the download and the 2021 Consumer Trends Report, which we will dive into today. Welcome to the podcast, Jeffrey Cologne. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Oh, I'm excited to have you. We have so much to talk about. and But as always, and I like to be true to form, can we start with where you're from? Yeah. Um, yeah, I think I'll answer that by saying, you know, I'm from uh, Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, uh, probably made most famous by someone known as Dwayne The Rock Johnson, but maybe... If I could be a small percentage of that popularity, Joanne, I'll be up that I'll I'll rest easy in life. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were going to say Bethlehem Steel. <laughs> no, he, he he said the Rock. Yeah, you're a long way from Bethlehem these days. Um, so on your bio, you say you work as a creative meets digital brand director at the intersection of marketing, technology, design, and media. Can you talk about that? Yeah, I think it's interesting because most most things we find are at the intersection, Joanne. Um, But if we think of how we've designed society, we've designed it where we've told everyone, do something in one area, one vertical, and do it very, very well. So you get people who say, okay, I'm going to be very good when it comes to media. But they never become good marketers of themselves because they don't move out of that silo. You have people who say, I'm going to be very good in design, but they don't understand how media can be used to help enhance their design. So we we're all stuck in these silos. And, and as a result, we don't really get, I think, the most out of the uh, human condition that exists out there. And if you think about how education works, education is very siloed until you maybe get to a university setting where, of course, you're told, hey, you should be exposed to lots of different disciplines. Mm-hmm. And of course, if we look at the biggest movement from an art perspective in, in, in history, and that would be the Renaissance. You know, the Renaissance was interesting because you had people who weren't inhibited by, oh, I just do art. 
They do. They did art. They did science. They did math. They did lots of things. And we could be on the verge of that again. I actually think the pandemic is bringing that out in a lot of people again. But, you know, there's just gatekeepers that'll tell us, go back to your silo, because that's just how they want to, you know, either run society or run a lot of these big organizations that, um, you know, have control sort of on what our tastes are in life. Yeah, no, I, I couldn't agree with you more. We really have a tendency to narrow cast ourselves. And we live in this world where people love to put labels. Everyone wants to say, you're in this box and you're in that box. And and I agree with you. I do think that the pandemic is shifting that. Um, I think you've seen people say, well, I've never done that. And suddenly you have a lot of time to learn how to bake bread, which is one thing I did not learn how to do during the. I learned how to eat a lot more of it, but I didn't learn how how to <laughs> and paying for that part now. Um, so can you tell us what exactly the brand studio at Microsoft is? Sounds very exotic. Yeah, I mean, what we do is probably similar to what content studios or in-house agencies do. So you're you're basically acting as a in-house creative or design and content team to help market your business solutions to those in the larger world. I mean, I think we put a lot of interesting titles on these, you know, these things. Really what it is is just a remix of, you know, an in-house studio. And if we think back to the history of advertising, Joanne, in-house studios are not new at all. They've been part of business for a while. In fact, the first ones really were, um, that I can remember, were in department stores. So if you think of all the big department stores that existed, they all had an in-house agency because mm-hmm. they all knew the look and feel that they wanted for their brand. That wasn't saying that they didn't use external agencies. They did, but they all the work started in-house. And then they could actually figure out, okay, hey, we're going to make a print ad What's that print ad going to look like? What's the jingle that we use if it becomes a radio ad? What's the tagline? All that was in-house. And and what we've done is we've just recycled and remixed that and put in-house studios back within a brand again because you can do your best strategic work there and your best creative work. And also media buying is all self-serve now, if we think about it. You can go buy ads across a number of different platforms So you don't necessarily need to depend on an an external agency to do that. But that being said, I'm still very bullish on agencies because they still help me get a lot of the work that I do out there. And I don't do it all in-house with just a small team. Like We rely on a lot of agency partners. And I think that's where the misnomer is out there in terms of you get all these articles saying like agencies are dying. No, they've, they're just being reshaped. You're always going to need creative people to help get work done. I wish people would stop with those ridiculous articles because they're trying to sell some solution, some technology. Um, it's like, it's, it's absurd after a while. Well, it, go, it kind of goes back to the same thing. People want to put labels on things. People want to predict things that are ha- not going to really happen. I, I tell this to my students all the time. I said, as soon as someone tells you something's dying, don't believe them. Because they said that about radio when television came came out. And people still listen to radio stations, maybe not as much, um, maybe slightly different. Now we listen to, you know, really a podcast to me is just 
a much more modern day form of of radio, except for the fact that I don't need, I can do it right here in the privacy of my of my apartment, and I don't need necessarily need a studio to do it. That's right. I mean, you said it best. It's like on demand listening, so people are still listening. And also, the other thing too, Joanne, is I think there was some stat we saw in the brand studio because we also look at a lot of research before we obviously do our creative. That listening was up on when it came to radio because of the pandemic. You'd think it was actually down because people are not in their cars. But smart speakers and your laptop and other ways of streaming audio just took over. People would be like, oh, okay, I'm up. I'm going to just sort of see what's going on. I think they're still listening. The, the stat showed people are still listening the same amount, you know, 20 some minutes maybe per day, just to try to maybe see like what's in the news, maybe hear some music before they go on and do other things. But, you know, that's not dead at, at, by any means. If anything, it's revived a lot of these you know, platforms. Um, so like we have to, I think, just pay attention to that. I, I saw someone tweet today say, saying something ludicrous, like television <laughs> advertising is dead. You know, no idea whatsoever about the fact that connected TV now makes you watch ads you cannot fast forward. I mean, <laughs> these people have no clue. And they all are, you know, they have control of these narratives because they have a huge amount of followers. It's it's just ridiculous, you know, because I think in a real debate, those people would lose badly, um, but they just have the ability to tweet whatever they want. Yeah, I know you and I. I know you and I are so on, on the same page on this. So we could go, we could go, we could go completely off on a tangent in this podcast, and then people will be like, "Why is this thing two hours, Joanne? <laughs> Why is this two hours long?" Um, so when you, we think of Microsoft. I don't think the majority of us think of Microsoft advertising in the way we might think of Google advertising. So can you enlighten our listeners? Yeah, I think, you know, what's interesting is Microsoft has had an advertising business for, you know, quite a long time now, maybe 20 some years um, ever since, you know, the online world has become a little bit more commercialized. There's been, you know, advertising business that uh, has sprouted up. Um, we also have a tendency, and, you know, I have to continue to remind a lot of our, of, of people that are out there that, yes, Google has a, a large portion of, of search, but, um, you know, there is another search engine that we, that, <laughs> that, that we operate out there called Bing. And we, and we do have a, a, a decent amount of, um, of users of that search engine, especially when you think about the fact that uh, a lot of people use the edge browser. There's still a lot of um, um, PC penetration uh, globally. And if anything, the pandemic, I think, has brought out the fact that, um, you know, mobile usage is still up, but we're using laptops a lot more, Joanne, because we're, we are at home. So instead of multi device, uh, you know, tasks, we're like, okay, well, just do this all while I'm sort of sitting and, and, and working. We're less mobile. I think ultimately as things open up again, you'll see mobile, you know, increase in those areas. But um, we, we have a search advertising business. We have a display advertising business. We have a native advertising business that uh, is, you know, basically if you're on a number of properties, uh, you might see um, advertisements, sponsored advertisements placed within the um, next to other 
news items. So, you know, that exists and that is something that, yes, I'm constantly asked, you know, is that a business? And last year, um, you know, we had profitability of in the $7 billion range. And just to give people like, especially mm-hmm. listeners context, you know, that's more than what Twitter makes on their advertising. So it's a healthy and a growing business. And I think we're also trying to always figure out where things may go next that we want to, you know, dabble in or, or where we might want to actually, you know, build audience networks. And I think obviously audiences are a big part of advertising and have been forever. Um, but I think that's where media buyers and, and, and even small businesses want to, you know, buy now. They want simple automated tools that say, do you want to reach this audience? Yes. And then automation can do that work. And they're basically tasked with the, the creative and the copy that they, that they put into these ecosystems. So um, I think it's just exciting times because even though everyone says advertising is dead, and I have to call this up again, it's really <laughs> what supports almost every single app that we have out there. Now, you know, that's for better or for worse, Joanne. I mean, there's some advertising, I think that, you know, it's sort of intrudes in your life, but, you know, people can't say that, hey, I love using this platform, but I hate advertising when much of those platforms are supported by advertising. No, I agree with you. And, and it's, it's, it's funny that you said this about advertising because so many people want to go to the subscription model. Yeah. And I got an email, I don't know whether it was last night or today from the folks at TED Talks because I, I have their, get their newsletter that they are now have a subscription model. And, you know, it just occurred to me, it's like, why? yes, it's a great idea, but how many subscriptions can you have if you start totaling these things up? You could be spending hundreds of dollars a month on subscriptions. So there's that. Is that really going to work in the long term? I mean, in the long term, how many people can can do that? Your average person can't. No, I think they. I think that's hurting actually the streaming TV model that we were that we're mentioning. I think people might at most max out at two subscriptions mm-hmm. per month. There's this belief based on research that people are willing to subscribe upwards to six. Things. I don't know anyone in this world that wants to subscribe to six things. Plus, you get into the whole area that, you know, a lot of people have talked about, which is ultimately this is going to cost you a lot more than cable. That's so right. the whole reason for, you know, un, you know, cutting the cord was to, you know, maybe have less cost. And now, you know, you're at a point where you're it's a very, very high cost to watch content. And then, of course, you have people who say, well, you don't have to be subscribed to that all the time. You can sort of pick and choose what you... Yeah, those are people who don't have... They have lots of time on their hands to sit around and watch TV. Those those of us who don't, Joanne, I mean, I don't remember what subscriptions I need to cancel and not cancel. And of course, that's built that way to confuse you, the, the consumer, on purpose. Uh, exactly. it's, ve- it's very dark design. And I think that's something that, you know, we also mm-hmm. have to figure out as as people who are stewards in technology, not building those systems. That's tricking people, which is not a way to build trust. No, no, not at all. The only way I found around that is that I signed up on my American Express card so that I had every time I spend money, I get an alert. And sometimes I'll get an alert and I'll be like, well, what's that about? And then I'll be like, oh, 
it's that subscription. It's, it's, you know, this $15 bill for your Canva subscription over here. And, but it is a good reminder. It's a little anxiety inducing when you don't remember what you did, but yeah. but it, it is a way, it is a way around it. Otherwise you're right. You know, it's like, I'm going to keep track of it or I'm going to forget and do it next month. It's, kind of kooky. Um, so you put out so much great content and this, um, which is how this whole, our podcast, um, our podcast date today happened was that I saw your 2021 consumer trends report. And I thought, Oh, what a great idea. Maybe Jeff will come on the podcast with me. Um, so I, I'd love to talk about that a little bit. What spurred that? Or was it just, yeah, I, you know, I think, I think what spurred it is for the past couple of years, um, right when I became the head of the brand studio, I said, Hey, what's our annual report that we can issue to clients? Um, not because they're, you know, they need another report that is out there, but it also shows our thought leadership and people look to Microsoft for that. I mean, if we were a, if, if this was a startup, I would probably say, I don't know if we need to do this report. But we're Microsoft and we get a lot of feedback from customers saying, hey, we want to know what your point of view is on mm-hmm. in, in these areas. Um, uh, I think that just is part of being a, a large technology brand, Joanne. You, you're, you're, you know, people are leaning on you for that. I think they also want to hear from the other big players in the space, Google and Facebook uh, I think, you know, issue reports like this, Pinterest just issued a report that I thought was really well done in terms of, you know, sort of the mm-hmm. visual trends of the year. I think people are looking for the platforms who they, you know, they have basically um, consumers that are using those platforms to understand, you know, okay, well, what, you know, where could things be going next? And it really helps marketers and advertisers with their media planning, if they understand what consumer sentiment is out there. So we did one in 2019. We did one last year called 2020 Vision. That actually was a long tail report that looked at the next decade based on the past decade. So we actually diagnosed all of the 2010s and said, hey, based on this, here's where the next decade could look like. And it got that got really good feedback. And actually, a lot of that has stayed true, even though even, the pandemic even, has even happened. The pandemic. Oh, yes, wow. because of the fact we looked at history and said, hey, let's build in the fact that there could be weird things that could happen this upcoming decade. We didn't expect a pandemic, but we thought there were, could be other things built in. And it's just, um, it, it's kept most of that report um, true. If anything, it's actually just sped it up or accelerated it. And then with 2021, I I basically just said, you know, let's go and look at you know, this year, because this year has been radically different from years past, as we know. Do you, do you think really? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we decided to look at, you know, five areas that, um, you know, have pretty much been affected by the mm-hmm. pandemic, um, retail, as we know, health and wellness, um, tech and telco, Travel, which is a huge one, because that one has really been that's really going to be an interesting, I think, vertical going forward. And then uh, financial services, which we see lots of change, you know, mm-hmm. going on as we actually are recording this. So, um, it, you know, the trends we looked at, we actually had 
you know, 20 for each vertical, but nobody's going to want to read a report that has, you know, a hundred trends in it. That's just not simplified. So we tried to narrow it down to five within each vertical. Um, you know, for us, it's really a way to help our clients. It's a really a way for people who, you know, may not be a client or a customer to say, hey, we really like what you've issued here. And there's action, there's actionable insights that, you know, someone can actually add to their business, whether it's a small business or a large enterprise. And so that's where that's where we went with this. And for me, I think it now will become an annual that we do um, because I don't think, you know, things start or end with calendar years. I think we'll note that some things will be long lasting, you know, trends, but I think it's important from like a vertical area for people to you know, for people to understand and digest what's happening, not just in their vertical, but other verticals that they can mm-hmm. learn from. I was actually talking to uh, two people in financial services who said they're learning actually the most from the health space because they see that radically changing. And now that's affecting financial services. And you hear this term, Joanne, called personalization that's thrown around quite a bit. But that is what people are looking for in both of those areas. In health, they want more personalized care. But in financial services, they want more personalized care, You know, which is one reason why people are rethinking how they use banks and investment houses moving forward. It's all, it's all kind of crazy. I do think, that, I think it's a great idea that what, what you're doing with it, and maybe it's my own twisted head and how much I hate Facebook, but I would trust something that I read from Microsoft. And I don't think I'm alone. There's probably data out there at some place that will support this, but I will trust something that comes from Microsoft more than I'll trust data like this that might come from Facebook because my twisted head is that Facebook is always twisting their information to benefit themselves. Now, granted, when we're creating content as a brand, we are going to slant it, not slant it, but it's, we're going to present it from what's best for us. That's kind of like, that's marketing 101. But um, I do think that it would be more trusted. I don't know if you found that Microsoft is a more trusted brand in your research. I didn't get through the whole Edelman report yet, so I don't know where you yeah, showed up. Yeah, I don't, you know, I don't know where we showed up. I know it was it was, it was high up. And I think there's always discussions at the company on, you know, how to continue to make sure that it stays at a high caliber. I mean, I'll note that, you know, one of the things that we talk a lot about at, at, you know, Microsoft is, you know, there's a saying that we all basically can see in the hallways and elsewhere is, you know, Microsoft runs on trust. I mean, one of the, that's basically a way to get employees to understand, look, you know, there, there are ethical considerations with everything we do. You might think like, hey, let's do this because we can make more profitability. But at the expense of what? If you're losing trust, Joanne, that doesn't help at all moving forward. I think the last decade was filled with people who wanted to move fast and break things and make lots of money. And now it's at the expense of where does that go for them in the long run? you got to think of the long tail. Um, And I think it's always easier to tell, um, you know, investors and shareholders and others, hey, we didn't make as much money, but that's because we wanted to basically, you know, we want to run things where we have an ethical compass, our (laughs) trust, and we want to be forthright with what we're doing. And that, uh, you know, you could you can do it the other way and put a lot of spin on it. And that just after a while, what do they say? Like your parents teach you. 
if you keep telling lies, you're going to forget what lies you told to cover up the other lies. So um, I think digital marketing is in a place right now where there's lots of people who just are not trusted. Um, but that being said, companies still invest with them because they 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 may not have any other option. Because they may not have any. I, I'm going to. I have so many. I have so many other so many questions here. But I'm just going to jump over here to one that I had because in the report. You talk about this idea of people, planet, profit. It seems like it's a good segue. Can you talk about that? I mean, if you think about it, look, you know, brands aren't here to, like, they're not here to save the universe. However, I think people are asking, customers are asking for more than just what had existed for the last, you know, 50 years, which is make profit give it back to the shareholders. There's now, there's now basically a remix on the, the new deal model that you saw coming out of the Roosevelt administration where people say, hey, it's good that you make money, but are you going to just pick up and like, you know, leave our community like we saw so many companies do in the 1970s, 1980s, and 1990s? Mm-hmm. I, I don't think, you know, I think there's, there's a responsibility of companies to say, you know, hey, we pay our taxes. We also are part of the community. We're not just here to like leech off you and then move elsewhere. And I think that's what's led to this triple bottom line. That And that also goes back to trust, Joanne. I mean, if you are running a sort of a trustworthy company, you're upfront about things. And mm-hmm. that's not just with like your shareholders. That's also with your employees. I think like when brands say they have purpose, that purpose actually starts with the people that work for the company, not necessarily the, the customers. I think that it's always funny that um, you have uh, companies that will say, you know, customers come first. And that it's like, at what cost? You burn out all your employees that nobody even wants to work there. So I think we're getting back to a point where people say, let's actually fixate on our employees. They are our human capital to steal a term that now Amazon is using. And we need to concentrate on that a little bit more. Otherwise, we don't get all these good ideas. And I, I talked a lot about that in my book from, I don't know, five, six years ago. Um, that, you know, that is where, uh, you know, that's where the emphasis is going to be because any good idea could actually be executed and become possibly a very good revenue builder for uh, a company just because of how technology works. And if you basically say, well, we don't care about our employees, and that person just says, well, I have enough capital to go start my own, and they start their own company, and then it becomes acquired by your competitor, you're going to think twice about how you treat your employees moving forward. Anybody is a possible threat, I think, to any company now. Well, I also think that you have a consumer that is looking at how people, how the company treats their employees. That is... You know, the fact of the matter is, is that there is no product or service that I can think of, and you might come up with something, that there isn't a competitor I don't that I don't have an option on. So if I yeah. have an option and I like the way, I don't like the way you're treating your employees, I don't have to spend my money with you. You know, that whole idea of, you know, voting with your pocketbook, I, I think it's, I think it's. I think it makes a lot of sense. I, I, you you use the words remix a lot, and I know I because uh, I am follow connected with you on all your social media platforms. You use that a lot. Um, can you talk about 
that as it relates to our conversation here or not? Maybe. Yeah, I think, you know, one of the things that's interesting is we should study history in every area, Joanne, especially business history, especially technology history. I think the other thing that we miss is, you know, how much technology is remixed to sort of fit patterns. And that sometimes technology may have existed 20 or 30 years prior, but it was too far ahead of the curve for the average consumer to really understand it. And therefore it got no adoption. Think about this. QR codes are more popular than ever in 2021. (laughs) And yet those have existed for a very long time, but people were like, I'm not going to use that. I don't really want to adopt that. I think it took a combination of a couple of things. One, your phone is really tethered to most people. So they're used to that. Your phone obviously has a camera, but also the ability for you to just open up your camera and point it at a QR code. And then that opens whatever the QR code wants to do is different from how QR codes operated a decade ago. It's become much more seamless where now if you go to, um, and I'm only bringing this up because this is pre-pandemic, but I think it'll stick Mm -hmm. post-pandemic. If you go to a restaurant, they don't come with a menu anymore. They have a a placard on the table and they'll just say, oh, our menu's on here with a QR code. The reason they do that is a couple of reasons. One, they don't have to print menus. Two, they might change what's on the menu. So it's a Mm -hmm. digital menu. So they can change that at any time to make it more seasonal. Or they might be out of something so they can just say like, oh, we're out of stock on that. You're seeing that in a number of different retail areas. So I think, you know, we have to pay attention to some of those, you know, those sort of older things and how they're remixed to fit the present. Because almost every creative idea is just a combination of someone saying, hey, I saw something and I'm going to mix up the elements to it. I'm going to combine it in a new way. And that we have this. And I think that is, um, you know, when I think of, uh, you know, when I think of TikTok and I can't say this to younger people because they look at me like I'm some old fuddy duddy. It is, <laughs> it's night flight. It is, it's, it's culture jamming video from the 1990s that now anybody can make. And what I mean by that is when I used to watch like late night cable TV in the, in the eighties, you had a show called night flight. They just took all these snippets and ran them and you would watch them because each one was 60 seconds. And that basically is what now anybody can do across a larger platform. But it's seen as new and fresh because it's on your mobile phone. But it's all remixed from something that basically came uh, you know, before it. I mean, podcasting, a remix of you know, radio broadcasting. Totally, totally. And I, and the power of the voice, which, you know, I started my career in radio, so I've always had an affinity to it. And I've always, you know, I, I sold the power of the voice and of connection. And, um, and now we're just seeing it in different, in different forms. And I, I do worry that some of these big networks like the spot Spotify's are going to ruin podcasting by jamming it up with a lot of advertisements. Yeah, they're moving in that direction because they've already started, I guess, like an audience, you know, network where they can insert programmable, you know, advertising into your podcast. And I, I think, again, that's the that's the whole, you know, misnomer of people saying like, well, you know, ad, I, you know, ads don't exist. Every platform moves back to them. Yes, there are there are not many ads initially in podcasting now. 
every platform has the ability to insert ads into this podcast. Like for example, like there could be a third party platform that says, Hey, we want to, you know, insert our ad into that uh, because everything has become programmatic, Joanne. So I think that's, you know, another area that we're going to have to, you know, see where it goes in terms of the quality, you know, for the, for the user. And also, you know, do we need everything just, you know, jammed up with, with, with advertisements that it makes the quality diminish and people, no one wants to listen anymore. No, yeah, you're absolutely right. Because I, you know, I, I think, and I think one ad or maybe two in a podcast is fine, but it also, as you would say, it goes, it's a remix. It goes back to the early days of broadcasting, even before I was born where that was it, you know, someone sponsored the hour, right? You know, a lot of, People and you, I'm sure, know this, but soap operas got their name because it was all the consumer goods (laughs) that were were sponsoring it. And, um, you know, again, I a lot of it is before my time. We're very, very teeny tiny young. But um, but that idea that it's, you know, you're actually listening to it because it's by itself as opposed to there's two, three breaks in an hour. Or yeah. in, 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 in there's two or three commercials jammed into a break. And that I think could, because I do think that the lure of podcasting, we're off a little bit here, but it's still our, still kind of in the conversation, is the fact that it goes back to what made radio so terrific. Yeah. Yeah. And I think anything you bring up, you know, you know, touching on remix culture, everything that is new is always considered fresh and experimental but it always is pushed toward, well, how will it make revenue? That's why, as you noted, early FM radio was free form and there were no ads on it. Now it's jammed with ads. Cable television was basically something that there were no, there was no advertising on it. Now it's all advertising. And so when you hear people say, I cut the cord, streaming TV has no ads on it. It's like, please, here's a, here's a, here's a voucher to buy the Brooklyn Bridge. Just go ahead. <laughs> I, I know it's it's it, <laughs> it's it's so true. Well, we could be here for hours, but I do have a couple more questions before I I, I start to get towards the end here because I could see where this could be the longest podcast I've had I've had to date. Um, one of the things that you talked about in there was this virtual and physical balance replacing work life balance. What do you mean by that? I kind of, I was very very intrigued with that. So I think. In the post-pandemic world, you are going to see, and we're discussing this a lot at Microsoft, not a rush back to, hey, you need to be at your desk again and in the office five days a week, but really more of a balance of, hey, where do you do your best work? That is your deep work. Like when you're doing deep work, like, hey, I have to put a deck together that explains something that I can't have a lot of distraction. All right, where does where do you do that best? You know, I do that best in a coffee shop. Okay, go do that work there, and then you sort of figure out what your meeting schedule is that you can do virtually. And there may be some meetings where it's like, look, we would love everybody who can make it to be in the same room together because we're talking about you know maybe something that's more sensitive. We want the best creativity, so we want to have sort of that um, physical connection. So you're I think that is where we're headed. And, and even the announcements, uh, you know, for those who are listening, Microsoft made an announcement this past week on Mesh. What Mesh is, is basically the, the, the mixed reality world of saying, 
how do you collaborate moving forward with mixed reality? So that allows for you might be somewhere where you're wearing a headset and you can collaborate with someone uh, where you're not even in the same space with them. However, if you noted most of the things that we talked about, we're not saying that's going to ever replace physical contact. We're just saying that that helps enhance when you cannot physically be with someone. And I think those are good things we should continue to talk about is, you know, Microsoft Teams doesn't replace the physical office. It, it enhances it. And so you are moving into a hybrid world where for the meetings you need to be in person, which could be like sales meetings where you want to meet, you know, be face to face with a client. Let's do that in person for the things where you, hey, let's, you know what, that doesn't need to be in person. We can do that as a phone call. You do it as a phone call. One of the big things that's come up this year, Joanne, is, you know, anything that can be an email, let's make it an email again rather than a meeting. And so I think <laughs> we're, we're moving more toward those mm -hmm. steps again yes. where not everything needs to be a meeting or in person. Um, that said, there are certain things in person that are great. There's a lot of serendipity from doing things in person. At the same time, there is also the ability to do things virtually, like being able to call into a meeting from anywhere and get updates on what's happening where you don't have to physically be in a, in a location. And so I think work is going to be much more open, at least this is my hope, after all of this, because some businesses may have said, we don't have a commercial lease anymore, or we have a smaller office space. We can't fit all of our employees in a physical space. And therefore, you might have to register when you're going to actually be on site. And other times they may assume, you, hey, you're going to do that from you know, home. And again, we don't want to take away from the fact that not every job can be done virtually. Some jobs you have to be in a physical location. I think post-pandemic, we'll, we'll see a lot of that where people will say, hey, we have to be in a physical location with each other. Let's get big enough space that we can actually fit everybody in. People can have their sort of like, spaces to remove themselves. I think the big loser in all of this is the open, the, what do you call it? The open sort of designed office might be, you know, gone after all this, because you may have still open design, but just less people in it, less distraction, more ability to do deep work. Yeah. Well, I was never a fan of the open design, um, no door kind of thing. Anyway, I thought it was insanity but nobody asked nobody asked nobody asked me about that <laughs> <laughs> they should have before they started like breaking all these walls down that is for sure no i totally i totally know what what you mean because even even for myself you know i i miss being in the physical classroom i miss being around yeah. people but you know sometimes when i'm teaching a class now and it's especially if it's at night there is something nice about the fact that i just shut my computer and as I tell my students, I can go put my pajamas on and pour myself a glass of wine and there's no commute time. You know, so there, right. is, there are some, some benefits that I'm like, well, you're probably going to miss this part when you are back in, in a – and I do think there'll be some – I'm 100% in agreement that there'll be some hybrid. So I want to ask you about one more thing and then we'll get to my well, – actually, two more things. So I have I, – we can't leave this without me asking you about your feelings about these new platforms like TikTok and Clubhouse. Yeah. I actually love TikTok. I think it's a great, you know, app. Um, you know, I think earlier in our podcast, I was sort of joking about how it's, you know, a remix of things that have already existed before. 
I think it is very creator driven, Joanne. I think what I think what Instagram and YouTube Shorts is missing is those platforms are just saying, well, we can't have this other app become more popular than us. So let's basically add um, this ability for anyone to, you know, do short video. The problem is Google isn't adding any creator elements to their app, nor is Instagram. But TikTok keeps adding all these creator elements. In fact, what I've noted to people is for every marketer who says, you know, I need more analytics with TikTok. They're, they already have those. They're already there. And they're probably going to get out more of those. That's a standard thing in 2021. That's not what marketers want. Marketers want more creative tools. We're already past that stage of analytics. We've had that for 10 years. In fact, I find people who say that they don't really know what they're doing, Joanne. They just want the metrics so that they can have an excuse not to take any big risks in life. Creators take big risks. Uh, TikTok is a platform for big risk creators. I mean, I think if you go on there and make something really interesting and unique, it can it can blow up. But I mean, even going beyond that, I think there's a lot of commerce that could happen there. I think there's a lot of extra information that's going to happen there. I think ultimately they'll add long form video, which I think should scare Google. Um, But here's the thing about all this. We now have a battle between three companies. That is refreshing. I'll actually, you know, I'll quote Professor Scott Galloway on this. You need that. Otherwise, you just have one company dominating everybody else that it becomes like a feudal surf where you're like, okay, I guess we're going to have to just use this platform. There's no... There's no fun in that. There's no discovery no, there in that. There are more choices. You know, one of the things I, I find interesting about TikTok is I, I am on there. I do not create content. Yep. I have no desire to create content. Yet, I can while away time. I am <laughs> watching these videos <laughs> and the algorithms are such that they constantly show me stuff that I want to see, you know, yep. which is Again, because their algorithm is not about what my friend, although I don't think I'm really connected to very many people there because again, I'm not, I'm not sharing, but it's, and it's addictive. The algorithm is addictive. Now, what about Clubhouse? Are you on Clubhouse? I am on Clubhouse. I haven't done anything there either. Yeah, I am on Clubhouse. I've only participated on one thing on Clubhouse, which had really nothing to do with my day to day. It was like being in a discussion around, uh, 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 like art and design and like where NFTs could go. I've actually enjoyed Clubhouse like you with TikTok, not being a participant, but just being a listener, being like the, you know, a voyeur. I like to log in every once in a while, find an interesting room where they're talking about something interesting and put it on in the background and just listen while I do, do work. To me, it's a lot like talk radio in that respect. Yes, mm-hmm. there's there's weird pauses and there might be periods of time where someone's like, wait a minute, who's going to go next? But there's that's something fun about that. It sort of mm-hmm. reminds me again of, you know, these other platforms we talked about in their early days when they're rough and they're raw and they're, there's experimentation going on there. You know, do I think it's the second coming? Not necessarily. I think also the reason it's big is because you are at home. What happens when you're not at home and you're sort of moving around? I wouldn't listen to Clubhouse in my car. I would no. rather just listen to music, you know? But I mean, so there's things, there's context. If you're at home, it's like, okay, hey, I'll sync this up and I'll listen. 
Um, so, but, you know, voice driven audio, or I should say, you know, social audio has been discussed for the last, again, the last decade. And it took, uh, you know, a platform for, you know, finally people to say like, okay, this is interesting. Let's do this. That said, I think there's a lot of privacy discussions around that. Like what mm-hmm. happens if you do say something and where, where are those recordings, you know, going? Um, I think that's, you know, something that, you know, 10 years ago, people wouldn't have thought of, but we're in a different era now. So I think you do have to think about, you know, everything is permanent now. So you have to be very cautious of, you know, what you tweet, what you say, um, everything, you know, else that, that is, that is there. But, um, I think there's, you know, interesting learnings from, from sort of these new players. I, I, and there's a third one too, Joanne, that I'm actually on Dispo, which is David Dobrik's app. He's a famous sort of YouTuber. This is a photo app where you take photos. It's not driven by your friends and it takes 24 hours for you to actually see those photos. There are no filters. You cannot edit anything. Now, everyone I've talked to who is a particular age thinks this is the most ridiculous app in the world and it will never take off. But when I talk to younger people, they love this app. When I talk to older people, they love this app because of nostalgia. They are sort of tired of the instant, oh, you have to edit everything to make yourself look like you're young and you're this. And that. They, <laughs> they're tired of that. The Photoshop world for some audiences is, is sort of tiresome. Well, I, do I think this will be massive? I think it'll be niche. I think it could cause some havoc, though, for the Instagrams of the world where you just know everything is doctored, that a lot of people buy mm-hmm. followers, that a lot of people buy likes. Like, we never get into those discussions uh, when it comes to social media, which is like what's real and what isn't real. And I think there are some platforms where you have to, I'm just suspicious about what's real. And and as a result, I just don't go on them as much as uh, as maybe I had in the in the past because it's like, whatever, it's like fantasy land. No, I know. (laughs) It's not as, it's not as, I was thinking that today, it's not as enjoyable for me as it was. Um, You know, I think back to those early days of Twitter and it was just really fun and it was, you really had real conversations. So I'll have to check this out, Dispo. Um, I love when I find out about things I did not know. I'll have to share that with my students. So two more questions. How have you adapted personally in this crazy time, you're out there in Seattle. It was a hotbed of all kinds of craziness this past year. Yeah, I mean, for me, it's just been trying to figure out the balance of how to work at home. Uh, I have two daughters that are in school, so they're doing virtual school. So, you know, how to make time for them, how to build in natural breaks that, you know, you can go, you know, you can get up and go and talk to them and just see that everything's going, you know, okay. Otherwise, you end up doing back-to-back meetings, Joanne, which is not really healthy. You know, there's this sort of thing that has come out um, in uh, in our report, uh, our trends report, where we uh, it's called cyber sickness. People are on Zoom calls so much now; they're getting headaches. They they they're they're tired. They're they just don't get good sleep at night because you're not really meant to be staring at a screen as long as we are. So I think you know if you for me, it's been building in natural breaks. You know, how do you move away from a screen for 20 minutes? You know, how do you make sure you eat lunch so you're not like, 
you know, when the pandemic started, I mean, I was maybe eating lunch at four o'clock and it was like, you know, ice cream. Like you can't do that. That's not sustainable. So, you know, now it's like, hey, I eat at noon every day. I make a healthy lunch. I try to take a break. I block that time. Like I think you're in, you know, yet people have to be more in control of their calendar and just say, hey, I can't do 12 to 1230 every day because I need to eat. And that's just the way it is. I know. I, I was laughing. I, I eat dinner earlier than I ever have before. I'm like, what's going to happen when like I go back out into the real world and someone wants to have dinner at like 730? Like, can, will I be able to last that long? I don't, I, I, I I'm not, I'm not really sure. Um, so one last question, and then I will wrap this up. You have been a marketer for a long time. And obviously like you, like myself, you have lots of opinions. What are the one or two qualities you think that people need to possess to be a good marketer in today's environment? You know, I think the way I'll answer this is, you know, automation, Joanne, is it's everywhere. It's been everywhere for the last 10 years in marketing. Data has been around in marketing for quite a bit of time. I mean, we taught, we sort of had that connection in, with radio. I mean, when I, you know, my first job was working doing international marketing for, you know, Sony BMG, Sony Music, the big music label. I mean, we had tons of data, Arbitron data, SoundScan data, Nielsen data, could figure out basically like, hey, we're getting airplay in this market. Are we seeing any expansion in sales? I I understand marketers wanting to continue to talk about data, but I'm going to call them out more and say, you are risk averse where you don't really want to basically catch up with the fact that the skill that I think is most important is how do you do things where you know you're not going to be able to beat automation? Automation should not be looked at and you should not say, I can outrun it. You'll never be able to outrun it. We have tons of historical records in a variety of fields that people never outrun automation. If we think about farming, all of our farming is done through automation. We don't have people out basically doing things by hand in a lot of these areas because we know that that it's just sort of a better way to do things. So where marketers need to actually look at and take a long, long look is, all right, what is being automated? What can I do as a human being that automation will never be able to do as well as a human? And that comes back to creativity again, because creativity no matter, even though you see all these examples out there of like, well, artificial intelligence can do that. No, that's artificial intelligence has to be programmed to do something. It cannot come up with an original idea. Humans still have that capacity. So I think in marketing, it will be a world of big ideas still matter, even though everyone has wanted to get away from that for the last decade. And creative ideas still matter where you can say, all right, how do we how do we basically execute this at the intersection of all the things we talked about at the top of the podcast, where there, you know, there's a variety of sort of meeting points and not worry so much about I have to be better in this area and better in this area, that are areas that automation ultimately is just going to be. It's just going to be a lot better than humans in the long run. Well, I love it. I think that the, I think you're absolutely right that as humans, we possess certain things that they will never be able to replicate. So focus on that. Where can people find you? 
I'm on uh, no, on every every network under the sun. <laughs> I will try. Very long. There'll be a lot of show notes on where um, where best to find. I, I mean, I'm most active, I think, on Twitter and LinkedIn. Still showing my, you know, old school. Uh, <laughs> and and, and the, report, the report is open. I, I can include that downlink so that people can access. Yeah, the report, you can right? find. Yeah, the reports at uh, MicrosoftAdvertising.com/slash/insights. So if anybody goes there, it's at the top of the page for the rest of this year, and and people can download it and and check out. Um, you know, I'm always curious for what people think about you know the research that we have in there. So feedback is welcome. Thank you so much. Awesome. Thanks, Joanne. Thanks so much for listening to Marketing Mindfulness and Martinis. If you liked what you heard, please share with your friends. Give us a rating on iTunes or Spotify so other people can find us. And hit the subscribe button so you never miss an episode. If you've got a question you'd like answered or a topic you'd like me to cover, please drop me a note. Info at joannetombrakis.com. And until next time, remember, whatever got you to where you are isn't enough to keep you there. <laughs>